Talk with Ben Tompkins. All right. What's good, everybody? How you doing? This is Real Talk. I am Ben Tompkins. We are presented by nobody currently, but these are the mixtape days, baby, and welcome to the show. How you doing? It's good to have you in. We've got a really, really great guest today. This is going to be an all-timer, man. My guy Shane Fowler came on and brought that real talk. He brought his whole self. He brought his whole story, and it's a hell of a story, man. I asked him point blank, hey, how does a poor black kid from Cynthiana, Kentucky, population 6,000, go to graduating from Harvard Law School, making it in and graduating? How do you do that? And we have a really good conversation about where he started versus how he's doing versus where he's probably going to end up finishing. We speak a lot about the application process and the moment that he knew that he wanted to go to law school. And we talk about his mentors and the references that he used. We spent a lot of time talking about networking and how to build relationships and how to develop those soft skills. Shane's saying, man, I had to bridge these gaps. I had to figure out how to get to where I was trying to go and speak to people that were going to bring me closer to eventually it's just somewhere outside of Cynthiana, Kentucky. I know that I'm destined for bigger and more things and I just need to know how to get there. And Shane relied on his people skills, his soft skills, his communication skills to build those relationships and bridge those gaps. Later in the episode, we spent some time talking about what it was like working at CAA, going from starting in the mailroom to I think I want to be an agent And then ultimately the moment that he realized that wasn't his ultimate path. Later, Shane talks about what drew him to law school and the niche that he thinks he's identified and the role that he thinks that he can offer the world. And then later in the episode, we talk about his clerkship, what it's like working for a federal judge, the types of things that he's doing, and the benefit of having his perspective represented in the chambers. And then finally, I ask Shane point blank, hey man, a lot of stuff been going down the last couple of years. We've had COVID, both of us being from Kentucky and Brianna being here, the protests. How are you doing, man? How you doing in the last couple of years? How you doing with everything? And that sparks a whole other conversation about social equality and justice and ways in which groups of people who have traditionally been marginalized are now using their resources to demand equality and hold others accountable. This is a great episode. This was a really great conversation amongst two friends. I have nothing but respect for Shane, and he's a great dude. He's a grinder. We love grinders on this show. And also, I just, I really have a lot of respect for anybody like Shane who goes from, I'm between, I want it and I got it. Now, how can I get it? Let me go and figure it out. And this is a guy that has put all of that on himself. It's not like he's saying, hey, man, I'm just waiting for somebody to come along and give me this opportunity or I'm just going to hope and pray that it all. No, like he has taken step after step after step proactively in order to shape the life that he's living now. He's living his best life. My dog is eating out here. And I, I love to see that. I love to see that, dude, especially being from... Kentucky and going to the same school and having classes together and then watching this guy go on to do this stuff. It's really fucking cool, man. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. So go and give my man Shane a follow on Instagram 
at a Shane Fowler. Connect with him on LinkedIn. Make sure you send him a message to say, hey, I listened to the episode and just wanted to connect with you and blah, 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 blah. Okay? Make sure you'll see why I'm saying that later on if you listen to this entire episode. But uh, good stuff, man. But yeah, thank you to Shane for sitting down and sharing everything that you did, man. We love vulnerability. We love honest, candid conversations like this right here. And if you enjoy this episode as much as I did being a part of it, then please share it with somebody. Either share it to your social media people or share it to a friend that you think would enjoy this. Share it to anybody. Please share this show and take 60 seconds, literally just a New York minute, and leave your boy a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I fuck with you if you do that. I really, really appreciate that. Hashtag I ride with Benny T. And that's all I got, all right? All right, man, without further ado, here is Shane Fowler. Okay, we now welcome Shane Fowler to the show. Shane, how you doing, man? Hey, what's up? How's it going? Chilling, man. I'm in Lexington, Kentucky. It seems like you're in Louisville, Kentucky. Randomly, I spend a lot of my weekends in Louisville. I actually think it's a superior city now to Lexington. (laughs) And I used to not think that because of the university that kind of clouded my judgment. Yeah. Um, But Louisville's such a fun city at this point. I think being in Lexington as a college student is amazing. But then the thought of having to live and work there after you're out of that scene. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Uh, we did Lexington when it had to be the best four year stretch that you could be in Lexington because we had the national championship in 2011. And then we had the last two years, the, the final four run out of nowhere is the eight seed <laughs> had the, the 2015, you know, ultimately it was a heartbreaking loss, but that 38 and one team, mm. that was a wild, wild ride. So I think we kind of maxed Lexington out and now coming back to it. Every time I come back, I'm like, this isn't the city that I, thought I was coming back to right so it's been confusing it peaked it literally peaked it peaked no it peaked (laughs) and now I'm like I'm at the bar and I'm thinking wait this isn't what I remember so uh, that's been an adjustment yeah well I uh we've been connected since we met at the University of Kentucky and Actually, one of the, I I mean, like, I wasn't even a business major, but one of my favorite classes was that business writing class that we took with Jamie and Patrick Ludden. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, that was my last year of of college was just pure graduation mode. Like, figure it out. And I switched my major. So I was taking courses like that I had no business in, but that turned out to be, they were, they were good people and I follow them still on LinkedIn. Same. Yeah. It's cool. It's it's cool to stay connected with people. I think that's the cool thing about social media and watching you go from the University of Kentucky and then ultimately to seeing your posts about being in Harvard Law School, which is not just law school, which is you know one of the reasons that I wanted to get you on the show to talk about what that's like, but just to do it at the highest level. Because you think law school, you think Harvard, Yale, and I don't know. Stanford. Maybe. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But but you, you don't get too far down the list. Like Harvard Law School is like, if you're going to make it somewhere, that's the place to make it. And you did it. Yeah. And you did it, man. So congratulations. And uh, did it with, with the help of a lot of student loans. But 
Um, but yeah, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Hell yeah. So proud of you and um, wanted to get you on the show to talk about what that's been like going from law school to now working with the federal judges and some of the stuff that you were sharing with me right before we started. But let's just go ahead and jump in. How does a poor black kid from Cynthiana, Kentucky make it to Harvard Law School? That is, I mean, that is such a like, it's been a journey and I, I can't, I don't think I could sum it up in maybe one to two sentences. It's, you know, it's challenging. I've always kind of lived my life as I want to do my best to open as many doors as possible. So even when I was in, when I was in Harrison County, Kentucky at Harrison County High School, population of, you know, I, it's probably less than 20,000 for sure. I know Cynthiana's got about 6,000. So I would spend my senior year, I would spend my weekends. I would, you know, on Monday, I would go to the counselor's office. I would get the scholarship packet the new scholarship packet that came out every week. I would spend my weekends just running through that packet, trying to figure out, okay, which scholarships can I apply to? I did that every single weekend. And it turned out, you know, end of the year comes around, we're celebrating graduation. We have a scholarship kind of celebration. I, I end up with the most scholarships. It wasn't because I was the smartest student in Harrison County. Obviously I wasn't, but you know, I was the only one kind of thinking about how am I going to pay for college? That's one thing about, growing up and not having necessarily money is you gotta, you gotta hustle and you gotta kind of figure it out. So that's always kind of been my, my MO is just how can I open this door that it wasn't open for my mom? It wasn't open for my grandma. Like what do I need to do to open it without necessarily having the trust fund bank account that someone may be able to, to use to open it. So you know, it, it's been a journey. We can kind of maybe dive in specifically to how I got into HLS, but it's always been one step at a time. And I, I can assure you, I had classmates who knew going into high school, they wanted to go to Harvard Law. I can assure you, I had no clue uh, that I would ever go to Harvard Law School. And I wasn't planning on it, nor was I, you know, that wasn't a desire of mine. It was never, Ever in my thought process. Was law school even in your mind? No, no. I, my senior year, I thought I was going, my senior year of high school, I had planned on going to UK and being pre-med and going to med school. And honestly, that decision helped me so much get into Harvard Law because I stressed for three years about my GPA. Stressed <laughs> because I was like, I knew I didn't really know any doctors other than like our family doctor. So I just thought you got to be all a student to get into med school. So I graduated with the highest honors. And when it was time for graduate school, you know, I look back and I'm thinking, why the hell did I take biology or organic chemistry? And why did I have to, to study so hard for those classes knowing I'm going to law school? But I also got A's in those courses and it ended up helping me because GPA is one of the components for your application. So it's funny, man. I think if I did it differently and, and I said, freshman year of high school, I want to go to Harvard Law. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that works out for me, you know? So I appreciate the path. I appreciate the journey. I'm actually excited to kind of have this conversation because it lets me kind of go back and reminisce. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a struggle. It's, I mean, being a poor black kid from Cynthia, there's no way to kind of open these doors without 
just wrestling 24 seven with life and kind of this unequal society that we have, you have to really grapple with it. And, um, hasn't been easy, but I kind of made it halfway. I, I feel like, I mean, I haven't made like, I don't, I don't find myself to be like this uber successful person, but I feel like I'm at least halfway there. No, absolutely. Yeah. Because there's so many people that say, I want to do this, but then for whatever reason, they don't. And like you made reference to, there's certainly people that you would attribute some of this to, you couldn't have done this without the help from family or friends or professors or, or, or whoever, you know, your mentors. But also there's a bit of it that's like, you know what? My man's a self-made man. He, <laughs> he, he built this for himself. Like you were the one that reached out and cultivated those relationships with professors or mentors or people that you approached as seeing as somebody that was working in, in a field that maybe wasn't exactly what you wanted to do. But those conversations and picking those people's brains kind of helped you shape what your ultimate path or, or journey was going to be, I would imagine. And I think it sounds like I can certainly relate because I've taken an entrepreneurial approach to my career. Mm -hmm. And if you think of yourself as a startup, like you were saying, when you got to the University of Kentucky, all those habits that you built while you were pre-med they maybe didn't relate or, or like relay over into what you're doing now, but all of that and being on that path, I think brings you closer to where you say, oh, wait a second, maybe this isn't exactly, but, but here is this thing. And now if you continue to do that, you're going to continue to land and, and get closer to where you're ultimately trying to go, which is, I think, kind of what you've done. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, so I don't know how to define success. And I think that's a relative term. I would say in Cynthia and Kentucky, success didn't necessarily match my definition. You know, the success I saw didn't necessarily match my definition of success. So that made me just a really curious person. And I never, I've never approached a conversation or a meeting or a discussion with a professor or business. Like I've never approached that thinking, I'm going to get something out of this. I've always just approached it with like this curiosity of tell me how'd you get to where you got or, or what did you do to get to your level of success? Because it's foreign to me, right? It's always been so foreign to me. So I've always just wondered what did you do? So maybe I can try to emulate that. And I always have thought, you know, there's some people when you have conversations with them, they're always constantly like looking for the next person to talk to. Mm -hmm. um, and that's never been me. I've always been just so interested in like hearing your story because if, if we're talking at some place, you've had to do some things to get to where you are, just like I've had to do some things to get to where I am. So I'm always curious to hear that. And I feel like if there's one aspect about my journey that has helped me get there is I have built really good relationships with people. I have built friendships with people. And those people want to see me succeed. So at first it felt like, man, I'm doing all of this by myself. You know, it's like me, my mom, we're struggling. We're doing this by ourselves. Now I have gotten to a point where I can just go through my contacts list and I can call someone and say, hey, give me advice on this. What do you think? 
And it's because I've had 30 other conversations where I'm just like, tell me about your life. Tell me about your day. Tell me about your family. Never asked anything from them. But now at this very moment of my life, I'm going to bank in on that relationship. And I feel like that's a fair trade-off, right? I feel like I've given so much to just learning about who you are. And, and now they're so willing to help. So, and, and you, you understand that. I mean, relationships, whether it's medical school or law school, Harvard Law, whatever, podcast, entertainment, that matters so much. And I think we get an advantage because we're from this poor state where, you know, not many people have money, right? So we have to learn how to have conversations. I have to learn how to talk to you. I have to learn how to relate to you. If I go to Los Angeles, you may have been the person who people have come to talk to because you've always had money or you've had that privilege or whatever. I've had to be the person to kind of go up and engage and figure out, you know, what do you want to talk about and how I can build this relationship with you. Uh, and that's, that's really helped, man. I mean, it, it, we can get into my story from going from Kentucky, University of Kentucky to Creative Artist Agency, but I can assure you, I knew no one in Los Angeles. No one. I did not know. I did not know a single person. And you know, I got I got hooked up with the best agency out there. I was making twelve dollars an hour. I wasn't like cashing out, but it's competitive. It's like randomly competitive. So all of these things. That was a long-winded answer to say. Yes, you're right. I, I can attribute it to my own hard work, but I'm kind of at the point now where I'm kind of reaping the benefit of. The relationships that I've built and it feels different, it feels yeah. unique because I'm so used to having to do it by myself. My mom the other day was like, you got to open your mouth and ask for help. And I've never been that type of person to really ask, to ask anyone for help. I've always just kind of had to figure it out. But now, you know, there's starting to be doors where even my hard work, my talents, whatever my skills may not open. And it may need, you know, I may need someone to come in with the key to unlock it. So it's been interesting because now I'm having to actually call someone, hey, like, I need a favor. Uh, sure. But yeah, that was a long winded answer. No, it's great. We'll circle back to CAA and, and getting out to Los Angeles, definitely. But I want to stick with this for a second because what you're touching on is really a couple of keys. One, being vulnerable enough to ask for help and say, I might not be able to do this on my own, but having built a network of a strong tribe of people that do want to see you do well and that are willing to help as soon as you ask. They're like, yeah, absolutely. And I think it speaks to what an important part that networking plays, yeah. not only just in life, but especially as we're talking about careers here is because what you were talking about with the success thing, like how you define success versus how success is seen and perceived where you grew up. And you're looking around trying to have some of those conversations thinking what's out there for me. And maybe there's not a lot of people that are there that are able to point you in that right direction. Mm -hmm. And so building that network is it's, it's never about, Hey, what can you do for me? It's always about, Hey, 
I'm a good dude with a good vibe. I've got some problems that I need solved, and I think I can also help other people solve their problems. So maybe it's something that you do and totally forget about for somebody, putting them in touch with somebody via email or saying, hey, you know what? You should check out this. And then maybe five years later, they write you an email and they're like, hey, thank you so much for recommending that. I just want to let you know that I totally took that advice and now I've built this company or I'm doing this really cool thing or... And it all comes back. And I think as you continue to pay it forward, when it comes time to raise your hand and say, hey, I need a little bit of help here. Who in my network might be able to lend me that advice or point me in that right direction? It all comes back. Yeah. Yeah. And I almost push back against the term network because if you're in my contacts, I like legitimately feel like you're a friend, right? It's like, who are my friends can I talk to? and connect with, I had, I had someone from CAA who played on the softball team with me, completely different paths, right? But on the CAA softball team, we were friends. We talked, you know, we, we grabbed a beer or whatever. Turns out my second year of Harvard Law School, I met someone at Harvard Business School who she was looking to get in contact with. So she emailed me, I emailed him, when I met these two people, I never thought in a million years, hey, I'm going to be hooking you up with this person or I may need you for something. Never thought that in a million years. It was kind of just like, hey, man, tell me your story. Like, what's good with you? You know, like, how'd you get here? Harvard Business School, that's dope. CAA, that's dope. Like, how'd all that happen? So my curiosity has formed a network, but it's, it's never been, like you said, it's never been tit for tat like that. It's right. always just been, I'm curious about you. Tell me about you because I'm learning. You know, my mom is, she's an amazing human being, but she got her high school diploma and she's worked at a factory for uh, 25 years. So there's stuff that I can take from her for sure. Great yeah. human being. I can take a lot of very, very solid traits and characteristics from her, but there's a limit, Right. So now I have to get all that stuff from the world. I have to get all these other tools, other skills, other traits, other business-minded thoughts. I have to get that from somewhere else. So every conversation, I'm like, tell me about your story. Like, how did you get here? What did you do? Like, what was your grind like? Oh, you did that? I've always done it this way. Like, maybe I should start doing it that way. And just that in turn, you just start building relationships, man. And, and like I said, I've always kind of pushed back at this is a networking event. It's just like a, it's just an event for me to learn about new people. That's it. Yeah. That's it. And if I use, you know, if sometime down the line, there may be an opportunity for them to help me or help me help them. Great. But like, I've never thought, yeah, I'm going to store this person for a later date. Never right. thought that way. And I, and I think, I think that's, I'm not saying it's a, it's a unique mentality, but I, I just don't see that as much. You know, like I said, you go, to, you go to a party or you go wherever, people are constantly looking for, who can I talk to next? Yep. Um, and I just, I hate that. I absolutely hate that. If you're talking to me and you're looking across the room, I'm like, I don't need you for anything. Um, I'm walking away. I'm, I'm walking, walking away from that conversation. Like, what are you doing? Like, I'm talking to you. Yeah. Um, and, and there's something that you might be able to learn from me and there's something that I may be able to learn from you, but you're ruining that opportunity. So 
having personal skills is a really, it's a really great advantage. And I feel like coming from Kentucky, coming from a place where, yeah, you can be Kentucky rich, right? But Kentucky rich is not really rich. It's not, you know, Kentucky rich, you probably not buying a house in Los Angeles. No, you're, you're going to have like a field and some tractors and maybe yeah. some horses or something like that's some that's that's good living right? that's a good living that's a good living right but still you have to learn kind of these soft skills and especially when you're the only black kid you know when you're one of five in a class full of whatever at high school you kind of have to learn like how do i relate to you how can i relate to you what similarities do we share and and once again Kentucky is not the most progressive state. So uh, there may there may be people who are already inclined to dislike you, right? Sure. So you have to kind of figure out, okay, how can I, you know, we're on the football team together. How can I figure out a way to be good teammates with you or whatever? Um, and it's just those soft skills. I, I really credit my ability to kind of build relationships, build a network. I credit that to be from, rural Kentucky where I had to figure out ways to be similar with people who are very dissimilar. Because I think you're coming from a place where your differences are immediately obvious. Whereas if you were a white guy trying to connect and make personal relationships with other white guys, you're already starting from that, oh, okay, we look the same. Right. So then some people, they never, ever question anything outside of that. They just, they're just like, oh, cool. Like they're one of me and I'm one of them. And so, but your obvious dissimilarity is I think what you're accrediting, like, yeah, I had to go out there and start to learn different ways to build those personal skills that maybe my classmates didn't even have to ever think about. Right. No, I, I think that's a fair point. And I think in a more diverse cities, more diverse towns, you probably don't have to do that. But in a town where black population, I would guess it's probably less than 1%. You're already fighting against implicit biases and some of our stereotypes that even I have for a a country white person. I have my own implicit biases and my own stereotypes and they have their own stereotypes about me. So you're fighting against all those things, but it's a town of 6,000 people. I'm going to see you literally tomorrow. Right. Like I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to see you in a week. I can't hide from you. So if we don't like each other, that's going to be awkward. And I'm going to have to deal with it every week until I graduate from high school. Uh, So it's just easier for me to say, let me figure this out. What can we bond over? What can we, you know, engage with? And maybe there maybe it's not much. Right. Maybe it's we both like superheroes or something. Right. Maybe we, we both like. Uh, basketball. It, it doesn't have to be any, you know, it doesn't have to be this grand scheme, but I need something to talk to you about so we don't kill each other because I'm going to see you in Walmart in two days. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to mm-hmm. have to put my head down and be like, there goes that jackass that I don't want to talk to. Instead, yeah. it's just easier for me to say, oh, what's up? You see the game? Or did you go see that new Marvel film? Like, it's just easier for me. So a lot of those skills. I've just been kind of crafted by my run-ins at Walmart, right? I mean, it's just, that's the thing. Yeah. Tying it back to the power of 
personal relationships, I think, is is really because, like you said, there's, I think, and I've always thought this too, I think we share this thought, is that there is a very bad way to do networking and then there's like the right way to do networking and really what the heart of like at the heart of what we're talking about is personal relationships it's that drives i think so much of business we if you're in sales you buy from the guy or the girl that you like more than maybe who has the best product and and at the end of the day sometimes that wins out personal relationships are everything in life and in business and especially in careers and i think um, you creating those personal relationships in the process of doing all of that, that's when the quote unquote networking part comes out where now you are connected with somebody via LinkedIn or maybe you email or they're in your phone. But later on down the line, somebody else that you've connected with says, I'm trying to get into this or I've got a good opportunity for this. And you think about that real conversation that you had with somebody and then it just feels like you're just tossing an assist because why wouldn't you? Because you're helping somebody out that you have a personal relationship with. I think people do networking so terribly and people want to talk about it as a skill. It is a skill and and you can get better at it. But I think a lot of those people skills and those personal relationship skills come inherently to people, whereas other people are really at a disadvantage and they do it so poorly because like you're talking about that feeling of standing and having a conversation with somebody and you know that they cannot wait the second that somebody else looks like it it could lead to something else they will drop that conversation like a bad habit and it it leaves you feeling sick and disgusted inside it it viscerally makes me sick to my stomach almost because it feels so transactional 100%. 100%. And, it's a great word. Yes, yeah, it's, it's disingenuous and it, it is transactional. And the same thing with LinkedIn. When people send invitations with nothing, like no, no, like, hey, saw your profile. That's cool. Tell me. Hey. Like when they just, I, I never accept anybody because I'm like, dude, you're literally just doing that so that you get a number. Mm-hmm. You're trying to build up your numbers on LinkedIn and make it look like you have this incredible, and it, and same thing. It leaves me sick to my stomach, but yeah. that's another total sidebar. So please, the floor I, didn't know the LinkedIn, I didn't know about the LinkedIn moves. I, I'm, I'm asleep to that. Um, oh, I rarely th- get on there. Think about it. Think about it. If you get an invitation from somebody that you don't know and they don't send a note or anything like saying like why they want to make it, it feels like that guy or girl who's in there with the name tag in that networking event that's just like having the conversation because they, uh, because uh, I don't know. It's just. Ah, I didn't know. So I need to, I get so many LinkedIn requests. I don't really send many out, but. I didn't know that was the wave. I'm gonna have to be. I'm gonna have to kind of investigate on that and make that's, sure. Like, why are you sending me this request? Right. It's that's a personal thing for me because I'm like, why? It just feels like they're trying to gain a number or something to me, and it's just like, if I'm just a number to you, then like, you know, fuck yeah. me, I guess. <laughs> exactly. So I see it. Yeah. There's a good way to do it, and there's a bad way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think. I think the good way to do it is like you said, is just improve on just general inherent people skills. It's not necessarily, I mean, I guess you can improve on networking. I'm gonna put that with air bubbles. There you go. But if you're but if you're improving on networking, you're improving on really just kind of your communication skills as a human, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. Like if I see you at the grocery store, I expect you to be able to engage in some type of conversation that isn't, as you said, transactional. And that is a human skill that so many of us either lack or so many of us kind of ignore or don't put in work to do. But yeah, improving on networking is just improving as being, I think improving as being a good person. Like, can you talk to me as a human, right? Like, yeah. then okay, you could, you could probably do a little bit of networking. You could probably be okay at networking. But yeah, I, so I haven't got to the higher levels of the billions and secession type worlds of, of networking. So I'm not sure how that works. Maybe, maybe <laughs> you have to be a little bit more kind of direct and transactional. Maybe, I don't know. So whenever I get there, if I ever get there, I will circle back to this and maybe we could just be completely wrong, right? Maybe, maybe Bobby Axelrod has gone into a room and said, this is a transactional conversation. Engage with me. But I don't know. I'd like to think not. I think at some level, once you get up that high and think about politicians too, it is, but it, they do it in a way that's so nuanced that it doesn't feel like it. It's like the emperor has no clothes and we know what's going on, but it is so much of, hey, yeah, I don't mind doing this for you. And um, if I ever need a favor from you, I'll mm-hmm. let you know. And But again, like if it's done for the right reasons and if it's mutually beneficial, then what's the harm in that, right? Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to circle back to this conversation when we're both more successful and see, you know what, was it actually, did we need to be more transactional? I don't think right now, I think we're doing it the correct way, but maybe, you know, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, put a pin in this and we'll come back to it in yeah. a couple of years. Or, yeah. We just ran yeah. about that. Oh. Well, let's come back to being at the University of Kentucky and then graduating and then going through the process of applying to law schools, interviewing. Yeah. I would imagine that, uh, the references was something that you had to build up and then we could even let's let's maybe start here so we'll this is going to be the next topic but let's actually start here to tie this all in thinking about let's let's so a company that i've been looking into a lot they keep talking about their culture of employees as the tribe their tribe their tribe their tribe so maybe instead of network we'll just refer to that as the tribe so when you think about your tribe and you think about some of those mentor relationships that you've established and built who are some of those people that have helped you get to where you're at now that's a great question i mean now it has expanded quite rapidly in college i i wasn't really i didn't really have a tribe i didn't really have a group of professors or administrators who i felt like were on my side you know when i was applying to law school i had to ask my spanish professor who I just randomly, I'm terrible at Spanish, so I just randomly had to take Spanish like four semesters. Um, and he just, he just happened to be my, my professor each time. And he was, he, I think he was a little confused at why I was asking him. Um, and then I asked, I did research with the biology professor, and he was really, he's a nice man, and he ended up writing me one. But there was a struggle. You know, I, I did ask a few professors, and they were like, I don't necessarily feel comfortable writing a letter, you know, because I haven't spoken to you in five years. So I didn't, my intention in college was never that I would need anyone's help. I figured I would just go from biology to medical school 
I would take my biology professors and that was the path for me. Um, mm. But when I got to CAA, I thought I was going to be a movie agent and I quickly learned that wasn't my path. So I spent the last two years in the music touring department and I told my boss in the interview, I said, I'm going to go to law school. You know, I don't want to get promoted. And that really kind of separated me because everyone knew if I was talking to you, I just wanted to talk to you. Right. I wasn't, I, I literally wasn't actively trying to get promoted. And that's a really competitive industry. It's a competitive company. And a lot of people are looking to kind of make their step from assistant to agent. And to do that, you, you got to get people on board at the company. You have people have to vouch for you. So then you just to kind of go back to our conversation, you start to see some of those transactional conversations, um, some of those disingenuous conversations with me. People knew that I was going to law school in two years. So every conversation I had with people was just really just kind of shooting the crap. And it turns out that I, I built so many great relationships in that music department. The department had the head of international touring, my boss, who I talk to fairly frequently still, you know, people who are in urban or, or whatever department. I would just go in their office and be like, and just talk to them. So when it was time to go to law school, I remember the head of music, he got me like a $500 gift card because I, I didn't have money to buy boots. I didn't have money to buy boots in Cambridge. Um, and I was thinking, wow, I've never asked you for anything. And that, that was just like a really good testament to our relationship, right? I mean, it, it was just, we are friends. And then when I got to HLS, man, I had professors who believed in me. I had professors who, you know, kind of saw some of my, my hustle, some of my grind, I feel like. And I got two or three professors I can call on today, right now, and they would jump on the phone 15 minutes, give me advice. And that's valuable. And I, and I wish I wish I would have known that in undergrad because I would have been more explicit about kind of creating some of those relationships. But I was also 18 and I was just trying to figure out what college was. But yeah, now I feel like my tribe is Harvard Law professors, CAA executives and agents. And, and that goes, you know, with say, without saying that I have friends who are now been promoted, who are agents, who are doing really cool things in the industry. And I don't concede them. I mean, they are my tribe, but they're kind of just like, they're my group chat, right? I talk to these people every day. Yeah. Um, so it has grown exponentially, but it wasn't always like that. And I think my struggle, I, I struggled trying to figure out who could be my reference for HLS, my HLS application. And that's a struggle that I'll never have again, which I feel comfortable with. Who was that reference that you used? Yeah, so I used my boss, Angie, who is a good friend who I talked to. Who I just spent probably 20 minutes of her time trying to come up with like a big career decision. And then I, I used my Spanish professor and a biology professor. And I sent them both a bottle of alcohol. And, nice. you know, I, they couldn't have been they couldn't have been great letters, right? Like they couldn't have. Been. So <laughs> the person who got. Adam Silver or the CEO of a Fortune 500 company to write their reference letter. I'm sure it was way better than my, you know, my Spanish 
teaching assistant, but hey, I got in, so oh well. I mean, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Because yeah, what I, if, what if, what if they just, they're just like, all right, we could put anything we want on this letterhead that says Adam Silver. My assistant's going to write it. I'll sign it. But maybe you reaching out to those people, maybe they actually did have more of a heartfelt yeah. approach or at least a personal touch. Yeah. My guy, Oswaldo, Spanish teaching assistant at the time, I think he's now become a professor. That was my guy, man. I could not, I still cannot say any type, like, if you if I try to do a sentence in Spanish, it would be disrespectful to that language. But um, that was my dude, and he knew I'm struggling. Like Spanish were the courses I got B's in. I would get A's in organic chemistry, physics, biology. I was getting A's in those courses. Mm-hmm. Spanish B throughout my entire college tenure. So he knew that I was struggling. It was a grind. And I think he had fun with kind of my attempt to pick up the language. I think he enjoyed it because I couldn't, I mean, the double R, like all that stuff just really (laughs) just destroyed me. Um, So maybe you're right. Maybe he did write the most fire recommendation letter. Okay. So I keep on mentally, I'm, I'm, I'm like skipping over that CAA part in those chapters of your life. So actually before we get on to like the classes and being the first year and and going through all of all all of the stuff at Harvard tell me at what moment you knew that when you were in Los Angeles working for CAA that it actually wasn't going to be your path like what helped you eliminate that and say maybe I need to rethink where I'm about to head with these next few years or chapters with my life yeah yeah so my junior year of college I'm in NYU doing medical research for this big program, it was a great, great opportunity. It looks great on your resume. <laughs> I was thinking, I'm going to medical school just off this alone. I'm in NYU, I'm in the city for three months, first time in a city, and I'm like, no, this is life that I want. I want to do this. I was hanging out with the film students and kind of, you know, there is, there is like a student film out there of me where I'm like acting, it's like in the deep dark webs of YouTube. I hope no, no one, I I can't even find it at this point. (laughs) It's out there. Um, So I was doing those things and I hated being in the lab. Like the lab was 40 hours of hell for me because I, I wanted to just be out there. So I come home, my friends and I start watching Entourage. I was like, this is the final straw. I am going to LA, I'm gonna figure it out. I LinkedIn message anyone. If you worked in entertainment and you went to an SEC school, you got a LinkedIn message. And it just so happened that the head recruiter at the time at CAA went to Alabama. Um, She happened to interview me. CAA doesn't give out offers to people in college. So I interview during spring break my senior year. She's like, "Uh, you know, we got to put you through the process again because we don't do that. Turns out I email her again. I'm like, yo, I'm excited to, you know, my plan's still to come out to Los Angeles. Don't want to come out there without a job. Literally can't afford to come out there without a job. Yeah. Um, so the day of my graduation, she calls and she's like, you know what, you're going to start in the mailroom. I was like, cool, perfect, perfect for me because I didn't know anything about it. So I'm in the mailroom and it literally is, exactly what you think. It's a mail room. We're sorting mail. 
we're sorting all of our clients now. Basically, we're opening it, looking to see if anything, you know, is required <laughs> police enforcement or law enforcement. And then we're kind of just like tucking it away. So if you're ever writing someone, if you're sending it to the agency, they're probably not going to get it. But yeah, I would I would go out. I would get the partners lunch. I was, you know, I graduated. I had just graduated with the highest honors, and now I'm I'm doing these kind of tasks. But it was fun, man. I was 22. I was with other 22 year olds. There was like 60 of us down there. It was great. Like very, very good <laughs> memories. But I thought I wanted to work with actors and actresses. I love Marvel. My thought was, okay, like this is gonna be my path. I'm gonna work with actors. Maybe I'll switch over and work at Marvel. So I, I, I work with the junior agent who covers Marvel. Basically he's like the go-to person if you needed updates on Marvel Studios. And his life, man, was such a grind, like a disgusting grind. And he made my life really difficult just because of his life. I mean, it was really, it was a really hard job. And I didn't like some of the things I saw about being a film agent. Um, some of it was kind of, I don't know if my strengths played towards some of that. So I left, I went back down to the mailroom for a few weeks. And I said, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be a lawyer because my thought was there's so many black entertainers who don't have a black team. And I've always like wondered, why is that so, right? Like, why do you have, why is your manager and your lawyer both white? I'm not saying it can't be, but you don't see many white actors and actresses with black managers or black lawyers. So it was always interesting to me. I thought that was a place that I could kind of fill in and provide a service, right? Um, mm -hmm. So my, my thought was I was gonna go to law school off of CAA and be an entertainment lawyer. And I was gonna try to target diverse clients. And I thought that was a really strong service I could provide. And then I, you know, I got to law school that kind of went away, but it's coming back now. You know, Now that I'm in Lexington, Kentucky, I still feel like this is something I can do. I still feel like I'm talking to some of my friends who have clients and, and I get a lot of messages about, you know, any lawyers that can help with this. And I'm like, oh, I can be that bridge for so many people. So it's that kind of that passion is starting to come back a little bit. Nice. Yeah. You know, I, I think I don't I don't think this sounds bad. I think that to some extent, there's always going to be that part of tribalism that you're just going to trust somebody that looks like you. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that they're going to think like you or act like you, but there's going to be at least a level of unspoken understanding there that they just get it. And I think when people started to immigrate to the States, that's how it used to be. Like Italians went to Italian places to eat and Jewish people went to Jewish places. And yeah. in the black communities, you went to the black drugstore and it was just like, that's how it was. And I think that there's some of that will always exist where it's just yeah. like, and it, go ahead. Not that I, I distrust you. And I think that's important to, to specify. It's not that I sure. distrust or dislike you, but like you said, I feel a little bit more comfortable 
um, with someone who may be able to relate to my known experiences. Sure. Um, and there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, because of that, I want to give you uh, some of my business. I don't, I don't find that to be, you know, that's how business has been ran in our country for 200 years. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. So it, yeah. I don't find it a problem for a black person to now say, well, this is how America is. This is literally how capitalism has run for 200 yeah. years. I'm also going to, you know, use those principles and I'm going to, I'm going to hire a black lawyer. I, that just seems to me, it just seems logical to me. Um, yeah. it, it's just always seemed logical. And I've, it's a little disheartening when I hear like certain musicians or whatever, like their team is all white. I'm just like, wait, why? You know? And, and yeah. obviously there's a level of success, right? Like if the best lawyer in the game is a white dude, then you want the best lawyer in the game, then you should, you got to take them, right? If the best manager in the game is a white guy. Cool. Like no shame. Like I respect their hustle, but I, I just think there's going to be clients out there who feel more comfortable working with someone who may be able to understand, may be able to get the culture references on the, on the phone call. Like, so, yeah. Uh, no, because because it, it again it boils down to personal relationships, yeah. and that's one challenge or hurdle that you don't have to clear in trying to get somebody to trust you with their business. And especially when you think about like so, I, <laughs> I'll go down these wormholes of uh, random like just genres of different shows or movies, and then just go on a binge. Mm -hmm. And recently, I started to watch all these different biopics. So I watched. Uh, Biggie's and Tupac's All Eyes on Me, and I watched the one with NWA. So that one's fresh on my mind. And Jerry Heller, what he did to Easy E, and like yeah. ba basically being the reason that Cube and and Dre and them walked away from that. There's so many instances of that happening that it would make sense to me if I was a black athlete or a black entertainer to either take it absolutely on merit like there'll always be the people that just are like okay just give me the best regardless of what they look like what gender race but there's also going to be i think a large group of people that say you know what if i'm going to do this i want to do it with somebody that i inherently trust and i'm willing to give them that opportunity until they fuck it up so but that's going to be what gets you in the door is looking like me so you got my business don't fuck it up yeah and there's black lawyers out there that have the merit to be the best entertainment lawyer and as you know just haven't gotten the opportunity or have gotten bogged down at a at a firm that has one black partner right like yeah, there are certainly there are certainly credentialed strong very intelligent lawyers who just aren't given the chance so i'm trying to be not only yeah you can be comfortable with me but hey also like I did Harvard Law and I did these two clerkships. Like, I know what I'm talking about, right? Like, right. you're not you're not losing anything. You're not losing any type of intelligence or any type of skill set by picking me. But I also can, you know, I also watched that movie that you also watched. Like, I also watched Life with Eddie Murphy yeah. and Martin Lawrence. Like, we can talk about that too. So, I definitely want to not only be the the kind of person you feel comfortable with, but I also want to be the person that you think is the best lawyer. And I will have spent five years of just raw training, you know, just raw training on 
all my legal skills by the time I'm done with my second clerkship. I will be prepared to like handle someone's business for sure. Yeah. I think it's a really good discussion. Yeah. And I want to bring it back to what you're doing now. So tell me about this clerkship and yeah, tell me about what you're doing now. Tell me about working with the federal judge and tell me about where your mind is working in terms of where things could be a year or two from now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So federal clerkships is really difficult for people who aren't necessarily kind of in the practice or industry to understand. They're, I mean, they're pretty prestigious. They're competitive. The advice given at Harvard Law School is first offer you get, you take because they're just so competitive that you may not get any other offers. I didn't do that. I didn't take the first offer. Um, <laughs> for me, I had really had a really strong application process and I ended up getting a few opportunities um, in bigger cities, Chicago, LA, but Lexington, my mom turns 50 soon. I get to be around family. It just felt right. But I work, you know, I work right now. I'm working at the district court level. I'm working with the federal judge who, you know, uh, she's, she's given the first pass on all these decisions. So criminal law, United States federal criminal law, obviously huge, important constitutional civil issues. She takes first crack at it. And she is a busy, busy woman. So we do our best to help her out. A lot of what I do is kind of research and writing. You wrestle with some of these really complicated issues that parties just haven't been able to resolve, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever, however you feel about the legal system and, you know, you could have, there could be just a variety, a variety of feelings about the American legal system. It is one of the biggest tools that we have to navigate the complexities of life. I, I truly do feel like that. I'm not endorsing it by any means, but I do think that, you know what, just interacting with humans, living with humans, there are going to arise problems. And how do you handle those problems? The American legal system is, is a tool to kind of help resolve those issues. So she takes the first crack. And then um, next year I'll be working in Dallas. I'll be working for the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. They kind of get the second, they get the review, right? They get the review if the district court got it right. Sure. Um, so it's an interesting two opportunities. It's fortunate, they're fortunate to have. I mean, my resume should, should be competitive with pretty much anyone out there. Um, I mean, I'm done. dude, just thinking about those two opportunities back to back, it seems like such a chronological building block in terms yeah. of like, yeah, I, I would like, as we've sat here and gone through just your resume from, it just builds like a Lego set, right? Yeah, it worked out well. I mean, I, I got the fifth circuit first. So I ended up, you know, she said 2022, 2023. And I thought about going into work. I thought about just going straight to a law firm, but uh, you know, it just made sense for me. I wanted, I thought about doing two, I had friends who went in that direction. So it just made sense. And, you know, I don't see myself ever being on the Supreme Court. I don't think I have the credentials for it, but I might just toss the application out there, right? Like, I might just put it out there. Why not? And uh, and, and we'll see. But uh, yeah, man, I, I think it's also important to have voices like mine, I feel like, in chambers. Not that I'm deciding issues by any means, but... I am kind of giving my thoughts on a very important issues that 
the legal system is facing, that my judge is facing. I don't, once again, I, I'm not saying I have any sway, but at the very least, she, she accepts and she listens. And so maybe if that challenges her to think a certain way or even just kind of challenges her to, to wrap up her own argument, then I think that's a benefit that I'm providing as well. So um, absolutely, not a lot absolutely. of, yeah, not a lot of black students that clerk. So it's a fortunate position to be in, I think. Well, I think for so long we've had businesses and other, you know, just think about any industry in America and the people that have been making the decisions at the top in those rooms where decisions are being made are typically like old white guys. Mm -hmm. And so to have a diverse opinion that comes from any other group that isn't white guy Mm -hmm. is important because there's things and blind spots that like I'll have as a white guy that other people might be able to speak to that make me go, oh, you know what? I didn't even think about that. That's a really good point because, and it's not, it's not because, well, I mean, when you strip it down, it is because of ignorance, but like not purposeful ignorance, but just ignorance in the sense that my experience maybe has been different than what they're speaking to and why that's an important thing. And especially when we talk about, you're talking about the legal system being a tool. And for so long in this country, the legal system has been used as a weapon. Mm -hmm. So having people in these back rooms and shaping the way that these conversation goes, just to have that opinion represented, I think is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's fair. I mean, I would still argue that it is a weapon that is being utilized. Mm-hmm. But I also think there's just situations that arise just living with other humans that are not necessarily, you know, you're not necessarily using the, the legal system as a weapon. You're just using it as some type of navigation for us to figure out how we can continue to live with each other. Um, and I think that's the best, like, I think that is what the best resource the law or the legal system can provide is just allowing you and I to live in a neighborhood, in a community and resolve our issues without violence or whatever. Sure. But it is, I mean, you're right. It's important. I'm not working. I'm working for two women. They're amazing, but it is important to have a, 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 kind of plethora of opinions, even just me as a man, there's so many things that you said I'm blind to. We all have blind spots, no matter what boxes we check. And it's important to kind of surround yourself with people who not only think differently, but who also call you out and force you to, to kind of reassess your former thoughts or your current thoughts. And the courtroom is no different, right? Like we, yeah. we benefit as a society if we have that. And I'm thankful that the two judges I'm working for consider that to kind of be a, the, the right mentality. Also, you know, I'm not saying that they're like, yeah, we need diverse perspective. I was a pretty good student, but um, in my mind, I feel like that's really important for us to have in the legal system. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because <laughs> not to stay on this, but there's just there's I think we could spend like three hours talking about just this, just just like the legal system. But when you think about who these laws were written for yeah. and how long they've been around, 
that's why it is important as we start to re-examine these things. And like that kind of segues into where I had mentioned maybe taking the last little bit of this is just being a black guy in the last two years and yeah. watching as many of the protests. And even though you're not from Louisville, but you spend enough time here and being from Kentucky, like having Brianna happen right here, I'm sure that hits much deeper for you than it might to maybe just another black person from another state. So how have you been dealing with everything that's gone on in the last couple of years? How are you doing with everything? Yeah, I, I've tried to lend whatever viewpoint or whatever resource or opinion that I think could be useful. I've had people who reach out to me and ask me for my opinion. I'm not saying that is necessarily something that I ask for. I respect when friends reach out to their black friend and say, hey, but it's also not my job. So it's been an exhausting time period for a plethora of reasons, but it's an important time period. I have written two op-eds, one in the, the Global Courier Journal about Breonna Taylor, kind of related to a law that I think needs to be reassessed. But I also wrote about rural Kentuckians who don't have internet like I did in Cynthiana. We, we have, we still to this day have terrible Wi-Fi in Cynthiana and how that was problematic for students who are working, you know, working from home and doing school from home. So the pandemic and obviously kind of this continuance of racial violence has forced us to grapple with so many things. Yeah. And you're starting to see the cracks of our society rear their heads and we are forced to grapple with them. And there's not much guidance from the top on these issues, right? Like how I engage with someone, I can't look to see, I can't look to my state leader or my, my senator or whatever because they are struggling to have these discussions. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's almost important that <laughs> at a local level, right? Like we engage civilly and that's something that I'm just so exhausted about. I'm so exhausted about how people approach conversations. It's extreme. It mimics what you see on Capitol Hill and it's literally just to win. I mean, these are arguments that you have just to win. And I'm not going to be able to persuade you about the most politically extreme topics in the world. The person who believes differently is rarely going to agree. But how we engage in that conversation is so important. And we are failing as a nation to engage civilly. I really feel like we're in such a polarized time. And it's yeah. exhausting. It's exhausting to be in. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm a little nervous. I'm a little nervous. We're, at, we're kind of at this juncture, right? I mean, you can look back and say 1940, America was at this tipping point, right? It's, so you can do that with every single period. But this just feels different. This just feels like a different time. And it's largely because we're not getting the top-down leadership that we should get. And we're also you also see a generation who doesn't necessarily believe the bullshit that past generations have, have either believed in or have had to deal with because the so many institutions forced them to deal with. Right. You don't, you don't really get that with this generation. 
So it, it is a really exhausting time. It's important though. I'm not saying it's exhausting to say that you can run from it. You can't, right? Like this is, we all live in society. We all have an important role to play in this society and we all have civic duties. I mean, I sound like a law school professor, <laughs> but it, it's true. I mean, we all have important duties as a citizen. It's just true. Yeah. And I just feel like we're not living up to that. And a lot of it is, there's so many, there's groups of people who've never had to really fulfill their true civic duties, right? Yeah. There's a groups, there's pockets in society who have never had to fulfill, truthfully, to fulfill their civic duties. And now I think we're starting to see conflict because people are starting to hold other people responsible in ways that, we never have had the opportunity in the past. So it's just an interesting time, man. And, you know, I'm curious. It, it seems like the last election took forever. And now I'm starting to hear things about 2024. And I'm just like, I need, Dude. A, <laughs> I need a break because it's just exhausting. The millennial disruption. It's a real thing. I love it's it. It's a real thing. Yeah. And and I, I have to give some credit to the older generation, at least from the black side, is because you can only be disruptors if disruptors before you have like sure. really disrupted things, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, like it's funny. I mean, so many, so many great people, even in Lexington and Louisville, are doing really important activist work, and they are moving the margins. But you have to think about like who really disrupted, like who really moved the margins so i do feel like millennials are disruptors in so many facets of our society but i i do want to at least give credit to that generation of this but it's not even a generation it's really just kind of centuries of disruption to get yeah. to this point where now we can start to focus on pockets of our lives that are just inherently unequal right like i couldn't focus on that because i was just trying to vote Right. In the 60s, I was just trying to get the vote or I was just trying to be able to you know, work. I had to focus on that stuff. So a lot of a lot of generations have kind of paved the way to where now we can say, why is there Congress is only offering four weeks of paid leave? Like that doesn't seem right. <laughs> you know, like we're yeah. starting to focus on really intricate, like specific laws, specific issues. Because they are unequal, but it's only because I think generations before us kind of really took on some of those just like godforsaken inequalities that we have. Yeah. Um, some of them have still existed, and now it's like it's our responsibility. But damn, is it not exhausting? Yeah, and I think that most older people are exhausted so they're ready to pass the torch on to us and i think it's an interesting time because now i hope that you feel that it doesn't all fall on just you that you can look at other allies or other people other groups of people to say you know what we're tired man I, I, my family's been fighting with this shit for hundreds of years, so now I've got some other people that are willing to raise their hand or show up at the march or or do their part and do some of that civic duty. Yeah. And I think that's cool that more people are now willing to kind of pick up that torch and say, look, this isn't this is just 
it's just wrong. It's yeah. just wrong that this is, and I think so many conversations, it's really weird that I, I literally have had maybe four or five conversations now that come back to a central theme of tribalism. Mm-hmm. And so earlier we were talking about it as something that's really good and, and can be really good. And yeah. I also think that when we start to think about how divided we actually are and some of those divides that exist whether they're in mainstream media or it's it's reinforced on social media or whatever we we are polarized and there is a sense of them versus us and we versus whoever and i think that that's a really it bums me out it it bums me out in a sense because it's, it, I mean, that is all manufactured, right? I mean, sure. From the 1800s where the elite aspects of our society pitted black people and poor whites against each other, right? So all of these divisions have been manufactured and, and now we see obvious issues with mainstream media and, you know, certain networks out there that are, kind of profiting off of off of this polarization. I will say my exhaustion is relative to others, right? I mean, I am a light-skinned biracial male. So the darker skinned black man, probably far more exhausted than I am, right? I mean, sure. The black woman probably is like, damn, this is just a lot constantly. So I wanted to, to be clear that my exhaustion is just relative, but I think we all feel this because you can't get on any type of social media network now. And this is the, the pros and cons of, of social media. 30 years ago, I didn't know my neighbor's opinion. Mm-hmm. Now I do. You know, now I know my neighbor, who my neighbor supports and why they support him and, and all this. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, they're, they're, it's important as a society that we engage in some of the difficult discussions that we need to engage in. But I think we're starting to use these as identifiers when they shouldn't be. I mean, who I support as president does not identify who I am as a person. Right. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't identify me as a human being. Right. So it's just difficult. It, it's, it's a difficult time. And, and I'm curious to see how, we kind of navigate out of this pandemic because you now start to see, I mean, it's been even in sports, which, you know, now (laughs) things have been so polarized, even just within the vaccine science. And it's just like, damn, can I get a break? But, you know, one thing that I hope is somebody, some, some leader, somebody just does their best to kind of, lead not by example, but just, I don't know. I, I want I want a leader that says, I'm going to engage with you in the most respectful manner possible. And, and hopefully that would come top down and we'd see that at the local level, but um, we'll see. I think there is a lot to be said here. And I, I know we're trying to wrap up this, but just just to kind of wrap full circle on a lot of this stuff, I think, I think, okay, first of all, one, I think one reason that people from the top down don't, don't speak out more or wade into those things is because I think people are scared of cancel culture, which, which, which should not mean that these conversations aren't had. But I think 
there is certainly a hesitancy to engage in certain conversations where it is so easy for somebody to just grab a clip and then blast it out and make it look like something that it's not. And people are so fucking ignorant on social media that they literally just read the thing, don't even care where it's from or, or if it's credible or not. And then they form their opinion. And I, I've had so many different opinions or conversations, I should say, with people that when you start to strip down, okay, well, why do you believe that? But why? But why? But why? They are reaching for well, I, I'm pretty sure, or I think that's what it said, or and it's just like, okay, but you see why that's problematic. Yeah. Um, I think being at this point is 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 really is an interesting point in the timeline of like America and just human history in general because I feel heartbroken and devastated that we didn't come out from the pandemic and emerge stronger as a nation. It felt like everybody's at home. We don't have anywhere to be. And we're all realizing the fragility of life and how human we actually are despite our differences is that here's something that doesn't care who you are or what you look like. And, and maybe, you know, in terms of the age thing, it's different, but like COVID could reach anybody and create complications for anybody. So here we all are with all of these different boxes that we check yet we're still human and we're still being affected by this one thing. So that felt like something that should have unified us. And yet then going from watching how the protests went down and Ahmaud Aubrey and George Floyd and Brianna and living in Louisville and for me to be driving downtown in Louisville and talking to people and engaging from people from all over the city and really understanding where people were coming from on both sides of either pro-Black Lives Matter or anti-Black Lives Matter or when I lived in California and lived in the Bay Area and Colin Kaepernick was taking the knee to then see how that coming back to Kentucky and then talking to people that was like, because the Bay Area is a bubble, right? So you get out of it and then it's like, oh, wait a second, people are actually taking Trump serious and wait, you actually have a problem with this? And like, and, and I, I think there's been so much of that politicization, I guess, is, is, is maybe the word, but, but really it's a weaponization. And to watch and to feel like, hey, we've got an opportunity here where there are some serious injustices and we have nothing to do but sit here and think about it and let it sink in and start to examine our beliefs on some of this stuff or the part that we should be playing or the part that we have played, depending on what you look like, what your background is. Like, these are really hard questions. And it breaks my fucking heart to know that people, rather than having those difficult conversations with people, chose to continue to live life as they had been. And as soon as things started to open back up, they went right back to acting the way that they always have. And the worst part is that even something like wearing a fucking mask gets taken as, well, if you wear a mask, you voted Biden. And if you don't wear a mask, you voted Trump and you believe this and this. And and I almost feel like it's worse. And I really think that we're at an interesting point where it could go one of two ways. I hope, I hope, I hope. And that's why I have these conversations. It's why 
I'm in an Uber willing to go there and have these discussions. And, and if someone wants to cancel me because they take a clip and they say, ooh, this didn't sound right, or ooh, this was cringy, it's like, but the only way that we're ever going to get through that is to actually have some conversations and break down those barriers. So if it's a temporary moment of all of that, then that's fine. But I think you've got to think about intent and yep. where the person's coming from. And I think that when we start to think about where we could go, I really hope that there are enough people who are our age and younger and the older people who are able to re-examine these things and are willing to do it, come to this table, have these conversations, and then from there, we really start to enact change that is not just for the benefit of one group of people, but really just for all of the brothers and sisters that live in America. I also think that, and I'm scared, I'm scared that we could go the opposite way, that we become more tribal. And this is a college football theory that I've had that um, is, is just a total sidebar. But like, think about when we started to see groups of people really weaponize their money and say, we're not going to, oh, fine. The owner of CrossFit just said all this like anti-Black Lives Matter stuff. Well, guess what? Black people aren't going to go to CrossFit. CrossFit Gym started losing all of those affiliations. We're not going to shop at this place. If it's like the, uh, if, if somebody, if transgender people want to boycott Netflix because of what Dave Chappelle said, which is a totally opposite conversation about litigating comedy, but that transgender either vote or or the economic power that they have in terms of where they spend their money, that could really hurt a business. So you start to think about, well, why wouldn't people want to go ahead and just build their own businesses up? In terms of college football athletes or basketball athletes, why wouldn't I want to start to go more and more into the HBCUs and build those schools up rather than go and play for some school like a... Tulane or a Louisville or Syracuse or Boston College, like any of these just like mid-level, you're always going to get kids that are going to go to the Alabamas and the Oregons and stuff. But when it comes down to like a mid-level power five school versus, hey, uh, Deion Sanders is going to be at Jacksonville State. He's going to build something pretty dope. Maybe you guys would want to be a part of it. Eddie George is going to be at this school. Why don't we build something here? Let's keep this money in our own community. Let's lift ourselves up. I worry that it does get to that point where we are only spending money or even hey, I want to work with lawyers or entertainment people who look like me. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. Sure. But I do worry that if it's not done right, then it almost feels like a regression because what we're really doing is segregating stuff again. So that is a difficult conversation. I guess I would make just a few points because some of the stuff you said, definitely agree with. Some of the stuff you said, definitely disagree with. In terms of, intent. I do think that we need to consider intent, but the impact of our words, of our comments, of our actions, that impact is just as important as intent. So when Dave Chappelle gets on the stage and his intent may be completely fine, right? I'm not going to question his intent, but his impact is to harm or, or negatively impact the trans community, then 
there's a problem there. And we can't always hide behind, well, my intent was this, right? We can't, you can't just hide behind intent. You have to somewhat look out and say, how are my actions, how are my words impacting human beings who have their own problems? Mm-hmm. So, and then I guess just with the last thing, with the tribalism thing, I think this conversation is starting to happen largely because now there's pockets of society who are able to have an impact on business, right? So 50 years ago, 100 years ago, it was never a, we got to worry about this. You know, the owner of the store didn't have to worry about being equal and, and didn't have to worry about treating black people as humans because they owned the store and, and they owned the business or, or whatever. They owned the monopoly. Yeah. Now you're starting to see there's influence to be had. And yeah, there, there's a power that has been harnessed that can impact you. So I don't think it's wrong to demand just as a human level just see me as a human, right? I mean, I, right. and if a, if an owner, if, if he comes out and says anti-Black Lives Matter stuff, I'm not going, I'm not going to give you my business. And that's fine, right? Like, I, there's nothing, oh, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that because for so long, for so long, the power dynamics have been so unequal. They've been so unequal. And now they're still just disgustingly unequal, but they're, I can create a shock. I can create a wave that may impact your bottom line. Yeah. And if I can do that to get you to be more human towards a group of people, I don't see anything wrong with that. If I can go to HBCU because at an HBCU, I feel more comfortable. I feel like teachers hear me out. I don't feel stigmatized or stereotyped that what I may feel at the University of Kentucky, then I'm going to go to an HBCU. So it shouldn't be upon me to worry about what my actions do to your bottom line or to the diversity of your campus. You need to figure out how you can make me feel like a human being as a black person, right? As a black individual. University of Kentucky needs to figure out ways to compete with HBCUs. And the way to do that is you hire more black professors. You build spots on campus that make it feel like I'm not walking into an all-white school, yeah. right? If you want my money as a client, you make me feel like a human. And I think, yeah, there is areas of tribalism, but now we're starting to see, but yeah, now tribalism is, is a weapon only because people that are weaponizing it haven't been able to weaponize it as influentially in the past as they can now. Yeah. And now it's an important issue because you have to treat me with respect. So it's a, it's a difficult topic. It's a really difficult topic. You touched on a lot of things there. But I do want to say, just as I kind of wrap up, I'm constantly thinking about the impact of my statements. I think I'm a decent person and my intent is always there to be a decent person. Yeah. Sometimes I mess up. Sometimes I slip. So I am thinking about how my words may impact a community you know, that just has it hard. And then just finally, tribalism is something that we have to think about, especially political tribalism. It's disgusting. Yeah. Uh, and it's extreme. I mean, it is extreme. And, and the system is set up to where if you're more extreme than your opponent, you're most likely going to win, right? Like exactly. I, I, if, if there's two Democrats running, I got to be the most extreme Democrat. 
well, I got to be the most extreme conservative. So tribalism is something to investigate, but I, I don't see it as a problem now that pockets of society who, yeah, they may have been tribal, but they just didn't have the resources are now starting to wield those resources to make an equal society. That to me, totally fair game. And if you don't want to play within the boundaries of an equal society, then okay, we're going to take those resources away from you. And that to me, that's perfect. That, that, that is a system that's working, right? Yeah. If, I, if I can influence you to be more equal, to be more human, then I think, okay, that, that is a net good for society. So it's a difficult, it's a difficult really, man. It, it's, these are kind of the, the most important discussions that people are trying to navigate. And no one is navigating them perfectly. Sure. You know, there's no perfect answer. I do feel like, I strongly feel like there's certain rights and wrongs. But even then, someone who I may see out has different rights and wrongs. And I think mine are right. And he thinks his are right. Mm -hmm. So it's challenging. And it's just something that we're going to have to grapple with. But we're not getting it from the top. So we have to kind of look at each other to figure it out. But yeah. And that is capitalism in a nutshell, is using those resources in a way that feels like uh, they should. And I just I want to be clear that I absolutely applaud it. I'm okay with it. I accept it. I mentioned the CrossFit guy just as one of the first examples that came up off of my head, but not not to sound in any way that I was ever going to like defend him or any of those comments or sentiments that he expressed. But hey, whoever whoever takes that clip, it's a wrap. Yeah, I'm fucked. I'm fucked. I'm, yeah. I'm but but no, I but have to get it out there just in case. You know, so oh, they don't it. target anything I may have said wrong. <laughs> yeah. But but it you know, it it is uh look, people in the sixties, Rosa Parks on the bus and other people, they did more physical demonstrations and it was for more basic rights. Now that battlefield looks differently because the world that we live in is differently. So people on social media or people with the power to vote or people with the power to pull their resources, that money now that exists within some of these marginalized communities, that's how this war or just this struggle and this fight for true equality is being enacted, which I don't have a problem with because if I... If I was born into a different situation or a different skin color or sexual gender or, or sexual orientation or something like, and you told me that somebody made a comment that I felt like, oh, it's clear that you are not for me. Mm-hmm. Fuck yeah. Why would I ever buy anything from that person again or give that person or business my money? So mm-hmm. I, I don't I don't have a problem with that, but I just, I think that's... It's just an interesting way to look at it is that like during the civil rights movement, we were talking about basic, the most basic, like the ability to even just exist in the same space and have the same basic rights and access. And now that through all the quarantine and the pandemic, we're starting to reexamine these cracks and they are extremely apparent. And we're seeing different groups use those economic resources in a way that's pushing the conversation further. Because no one ever, no one ever, um, no one, it's like the kid that sits there and asks politely, 
No one really pays attention to them when they just sit there and raise their hand. And, oh, is it my turn to speak? Sometimes change is enacted from those who demand that it's enacted and things might get a little bit turbulent for a while, but that's how you push the envelope forward. And you know what? If America and white Americans aren't able to deal with that and say, okay, well, this is capitalism, but now that these groups are starting to take power over that and redefine how this game is played, you know what? That's the fucking kid that sits there and goes, I don't want to play anymore. It takes their ball and runs in the house. You yeah. can't be that guy. Don't be that guy. And you, I mean, we don't have time, but if you ever wanted to get my thoughts on capitalism, those are <laughs> huge, huge things that I have opinions on. Ultimately, not willing to share those opinions just yet. Cool. Trying, trying to still figure it out. I mean, one thing about coming from Cynthia in Kentucky, I'm constantly having to learn how this world actually works. Cause I was in a bubble. Yeah. Um, I was in a bubble for 18 years and now my eyes are so open to not only these cracks, but just all facets of society, business, the more social kind of civil scene, it's all brand new. So uh, yeah. We'll come back to some of this stuff and have to do this again. Yeah, man, for sure. Shane, thank you so much for coming on. And I think this was a really, really great discussion and, um, I'm just I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that we're still friends and and I'm glad that we can have this stuff and I think you know where my heart's at with a lot of this stuff and uh, I think that anybody that listens to your story can certainly in whatever way that they're able to relate I think there's a lot of relatability there and I absolutely am thrilled for these next few chapters of your life and I'm happy to know you man. Thank you sir. Thank you man. I appreciate it. I great opportunity to kind of have these discussions. I mean, these aren't discussions that I necessarily flood my group chats with. So I appreciate you for the opportunity, man. Letting me tell my story a little bit. If there's anyone that ever wants to kind of hear more, if there's any interest in law school or whatever, please feel free to reach out. And yeah, man, thank you. Now it's time to kind of get back to work. <laughs> awesome. Take care, Shane. All righty. See you, boss. All right, guys, that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I think this is one of the best ones that we've done thus far, and I really, really appreciate Shane for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. It's not easy. We're having conversations that, as we made reference to, people are scared to have, but this is the only way to continue to push that ball forward is to have real conversations and then open it up to you, the listener, to chime in. So if you agree or disagree with anything that was said in this episode if you'd like to weigh in share your own opinions maybe even get you on the show one day if you pass the background check okay um then hit the show up man please at real talk w on instagram you can also hit me on my tiktok my twitter account or my personal instagram that's at bennytomp18 please slide in let me know what's good. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please let me know what's good as well by dropping a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps me grow this show. It takes two seconds. I mean, it's so fast. I probably could have done one in this time that I've started talking this sentence about leaving a review, okay? It's that fast. It's just boom. Please do it. It really helps me grow the show. It really does. So... Yeah, man. Uh, I'm back next week. I am still traveling on the road. We are currently 
camped out at Redwoods National Park right now as I'm taping this outro in the Subaru and uh, putting the finishing touches on this episode. We've got some content that's going to be coming out, me and Maddie doing some recaps of the stuff that we've been doing on this trip. And I'm going to have another banger of an episode dropping next Wednesday. My guy, Tim Schladen is rejoining the show. First time I've ever had a guest make a second appearance. So really, really excited to have him back. We had a great conversation about a lot of social justice issues, a lot of, a lot more of a conversation on tribalism and, um, also getting Tim sharing what it was like being one of the protesters that stood outside of the Walgreens in Prospect on 42 for months and months and months and leading some of those protests. We'll hear from him and it's another great episode. So please join us again next Wednesday and hashtag I ride with Benny T if you share this post and if you ride with the kid, then I ride with you too, my friends. And it's good to have you with us. I swear to God, there's going to be so much more. So please come along on this ride with me. I'm back next week. I am Ben Tompkins. That's Real Talk. <laughs>